You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. Sexual dysfunction after surgery and catastrophic illness, the forgotten problem. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. Laura Berman, an assistant clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology and psychiatry at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. After obtaining a master's degree in clinical social work and a doctorate in health education specializing in human sexuality from New York University, Dr. Berman went on to complete a training fellowship in sexual therapy with the Department of Psychiatry, New York University Medical Center, and has been working as a sex educator, research, and therapist for 18 years. When a patient has a serious illness, all too often we get so caught up in survival and recovery that sexual issues are ignored in spite of the huge impact it has on a woman's relationship, quality of life, and her own sense of self. Today, Dr. Berman is going to share her insights as to how we can help patients who have sexual issues as a result of surgery or other serious medical conditions. Welcome, Dr. Berman. Thank you. Now, for the woman who's contending with a new diagnosis of breast cancer that requires surgery and potentially chemotherapy, sex is usually the last thing on her mind because the emphasis is and should be on on treating the cancer. Um, But sadly, many cancer survivors survivors feel reluctant to complain about something as trivial as the loss of their sex life. So when and how is the best way for us to bring up sexuality and include it as part of her recovery process? It's becoming a trend, more and more of a trend, thankfully, for doctors to really proactively address this because it really is a quality of life issue for women and a huge loss because basically, you know, going through chemotherapy puts them into menopause if they're not there already, and they often will experience dryness, pain, lack of libido as a result. And, you know, if they talk to their oncologist, more often than not, I hear from women that their oncologist just tells them, you're lucky to be alive. You know, don't talk to me about your sex life. But, you know, in the gynecological world and in the field of survivorship medicine, which is a very significantly growing field, this is a topic that is very commonly discussed with breast cancer survivors. And unfortunately, the options are limited because the most natural instinct would be to go the hormonal route, Mm -hmm. which is not an option. Some doctors... Although that's a little bit controversial as well. Right, and especially within the realm of the topical or... And and vaginal estrogens. I mean, this has been... Right, and vaginal estrogens. I don't know what your experience has been, but, you know, certainly when I recommend to my patients that it's perfectly safe and appropriate Mm -hmm. to use a vaginal estrogen, and then their medical oncologist will tell them absolutely not. Right, and that happens all the time. And the STAR study, the big breast cancer study, allows Vagifem and S-string, and it is considered to be minimally to not at all systemically absorbed. But it's almost as if, you know, every medical profession has their own lens through which they see the world, you know, Mm -hmm. and the oncologist is seeing the world through cancer. And if you are wanting to eradicate every potential element of cancer risk, you're not going to, you know, even if there's a .0001% of a risk, 
the oncologist is going to tell you not to take it. The gynecologist may have a different perspective where, like, let's weigh the reality here and how likely is it that this is really a risk and how does it measure up against your quality of life, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the doctor and the patient have to really make that decision together. And so those, you know, the vagifems, the esterings, the vaginal estrogens definitely help with the health of the vaginal tissue, the lubrication. The other thing that I have found helpful is Viagra in these women because that will promote blood flow, either taken, you know, on a regular basis or taken prior to sex. But the big clincher and the big issue is what do you do about libido because testosterone can theoretically you know, aromatize into estrogen. estrogen right. So in most cases, it's not recommended. You know, although many breast cancer survivors are willing to sign their consent their lives away <laughs> to get testosterone because it's, you know, they're saying I've gotten a new lease on life. You know, I'm ready to live a long, healthy life, and I don't want to give up my sex life as part of that. So it's a real issue. Now, aside from the breast cancer survivors, in cancer patients in general, do you come across issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime chemotherapy is involved, you're going to have issues. And certainly, you know, with any kind of reproductive or gynecological cancer, you're going to see significant sexual side effects, not to mention the body image side effects the with all cancers, right. the uh, relationship side effects when the relationship goes from equal partners or lovers to caretaker and sick person or the issues around death or fear of dying or losing your partner, you know, all of those things come up. And most of the programs in survivorship medicine now are really becoming multidisciplinary so that it includes medicine looking at all aspects of the patient's life, her sexual life, her emotional life, her relationship, her nutrition, and also, you know, incorporating some reparative therapy. If you're just joining us, we are talking about the impact of medical conditions on sexuality on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and I'm speaking with Dr. Laura Berman. Moving on to patients who don't have cancer, uh, certainly in my practice, this is general gynecology, virtually every woman is concerned about what will happen after hysterectomy in terms of her sexual function, desire, desirability. And unfortunately, she very often doesn't express this to her doctor, to her partner, sometimes even herself. And in fact, studies have shown that only about half of gynecologists even initiate a discussion of sex before hysterectomy. And only about 10, 12% of patients bring it up themselves. So I would like to know from your point of view, some of the problems that you have seen in your practice after hysterectomies. And I'm really would like to focus more on the patient whose ovaries are not removed, who doesn't become menopausal as a result, who's hormonally still the same, but it's just the matter of the removal of the uterus. What I have found is one of the biggest predictors of her comfort level with what happens to her sexuality, whatever that is afterwards, is having been warned about the potential prior. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important piece. The research is really equivocal on the effects of hysterectomy on women's sexual function. Some studies show there is a negative effect. Some studies show there's none. The studies are hard to design because often there's not a long lead time before a hysterectomy is performed. So you can't get a really good pre-test measurement of what her sexual function was. And in some cases, her pain was so significant or her discomfort was so significant prior to the hysterectomy that afterwards was actually an improvement. However, I do believe we are so far behind the times when it comes to women as compared to men. I mean, we have mapped 
the crucial nerves and blood vessels that are essential to sexual function in men and perform nerve-sparing prostate surgeries or pelvic surgeries in men. The same has not happened for women. They have not been mapped. So my sense, just from talking to all the women that I have who have had a hysterectomy and have experienced, and I see a skewed sample because I'm seeing the women the who have sure. sexual dysfunction, that it's almost the luck of the draw because when you go in to cut, you're making an effort to maybe spare the progenital nerve or the obvious ones, but it's sort of the luck of the draw, what gets cut and what doesn't. And then the research has also shown for a while they were thinking, well, maybe super cervical hysterectomy would make a difference if you left in the cervix, and there doesn't seem to be a difference there either. Which is really interesting because there's a study that I'm sure you're familiar with where they didn't tell the women whether they removed their cervix or not and monitor their sexual function over the year after the hysterectomy and found no difference in the women who had their cervix and the women who did not, which absolutely shocked me. Um, And I'm wondering, and again, you see a skewed population, but anecdotally, do you find that women who tend to have greater sexual dysfunction after hysterectomy are women who've had removals of their cervix, or it just doesn't matter? It's still not that common to do the supracervical hysterectomy, so I don't see a huge number. Except in my practice. Yeah, I tend to to leave a lot of cervixes. Right, which which I think is a great idea. I mean, you can't go wrong. In fact, she has to have regular pap smears. Why take out anything that you don't have to? Right. But yes, so so I don't see a large population of women with super cervical. Po- Maybe that's because there are, is a large population, but they're not having they're not sexual coming dysfunction. To see you, right? Uh, we don't like you know, I don't know. And let's just face it: all other things, all nerves and blood vessels, you know, being equal. The other thing I've noticed is that women who had vaginal orgasms prior to hysterectomy, where they had those deep pelvic floor and uterine contractions, will notice a drastic decrease in the intensity of the orgasm after hysterectomy when they no longer have a uterus to contract. And that, I think, is a really important piece of information to give women prior to hysterectomy. If you have vaginal orgasms, you should know that it's probable that the intensity will change. Well, it's interesting because I always ask my patients when I talk about sexuality prior to the hysterectomy, and I say, do you have a uterine contraction with your orgasm? And the majority of them look at me and say, I don't know. Right. I guess that means maybe they're not. I don't know. No, they don't know. They don't know what's contracting. But it does contract with a G-spot orgasm. What about the psychological ramifications of hysterectomy? I think they're, you know, I think they're significant. There are some, you know, animal behaviorists who are absolutely convinced that there is something pheromonically (laughs) that happens to women after hysterectomy, you know, Mm -hmm. that unconsciously and in terms of their pheromones, something shifts Mm -hmm. and that changes the way they are perceived or seen and maybe even the way they see themselves. Don't you think it's somewhat cultural as well? I find that there are certain groups of women that are far more distressed about the idea of losing their uterus as far Mm -hmm. as their sense of self and sexuality. And womanhood. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more likely that when you have that sense of absence of a core part of your feminine identity, whether you intend it to or not, you kind of radiate that out to the world and then you get that kind of energy back. Can you talk a little bit about pain after hysterectomy? How often do you see that from scarring in the back of the the vagina? Pain is a big issue and not only from that, but even there's often a little bit of atrophy of the ovaries even when you leave them in and sometimes there's a drop in estrogen and there'll be dryness and thinning too. But yeah, the scarring can be a big issue and That's one of the ways in which gynecological physical therapy can be really helpful to help manipulate that scar tissue 
and ease some of the tension there. A lot of listeners may not be familiar with the role of the gynecologic physical therapist, so if you could talk about it a little bit. Gynecological physical therapy is a physical therapist who specializes in the pelvic floor, and so the physician needs to refer the patient to them, and there's, you know, it's become a huge growing field of physical therapy. And basically what they do is look for pelvic floor dysfunction, pelvic floor tension, scar tissue, pelvic floor strength. They'll often use manual manipulation to, you know, help alleviate scar tissue. As I said earlier, they'll use biofeedback, they'll use ultrasound, all the same technology that you use in other aspects of physical therapy. I want all patients with pain to get gynecological physical therapy because even if it's not the primary ideology isn't muscular or skeletal muscular, they end up with this sort of vaginismus or knee-jerk reaction to the pain, which is involuntary clenching of the vaginal muscles, which then exacerbates the pain and often remains after the source of the pain has been alleviated. And so the pain continues via the vaginismus. So gynecological physical therapy is a fundamental element of any pain protocol, as far as I'm concerned, any genital pain protocol. What time frame is typical for a patient who has these sorts of pelvic floor contraction issues? Is this something that a couple of weeks of therapy will alleviate the problem, or are these women who really need to commit to months or even years? It depends, honestly, on the degree of of pelvic floor dysfunction. But, you know, the cool thing about well, I guess with any physical therapy, but with this kind as well, is that they really educate the patient, you know, and they have their own homework exercises that they're doing on their own in addition to coming in for treatment. So if the patient is committed to doing her homework, you know, the process moves much quicker than if she's just going in once a week to her appointment. I'd like to spend a minute talking about medications. Certainly, many medical conditions require different medications, and we know that some of these pharmaceuticals can have a huge impact on libido and sexuality. Are there any that come to mind that you think we should be aware of as potentially causing problems? Well, I mean, some of the interesting ones are anything that has a histemic effect will have a drying effect on the genitals as well. The SSRIs, we know, create sexual side effects. A new study just came out looking at women and found that Viagra will counteract the sexual response side effects very nicely of SSRIs, but not necessarily the libido side effects unless she's lost her libido because she can't respond. But often with SSRIs, you have both unique issues of low libido and low sexual response. Hormonal contraceptives will increase SHBG, protein in the blood that binds testosterone to the cells, so your free circulating testosterone is lower. Let me go back to Viagra for a second, because, of course, that was in the press and was very interesting to a lot of women, but we're not all that familiar with prescribing Viagra to our patients. So is there anything that we need to know? Is the dosage different than in men? Is the way we give it, the timing? It's pretty much the same. The dosage is the same. The side effects are the same. And the timing is the same. That's easy enough. Yeah. And usually you start on 50 milligrams and go up to 100. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Laura Berman, who has provided information that will make a significant difference in how we approach the patient with surgery or illness that affects sexual function. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit ReachMD.com. You've been listening to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.